You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross com slash LPR. DA Fonnie Willis has consented to be here with us. And so my only request from this family today is, this is a really hard job I'm trying to do. And I am an imperfect human being, but I can literally feel the people who loves me's prayers. None of us would ever say, you know, I really want to fall asleep with Sean Hannity's voice just echoing in my mind. I really want Laura Ingram and Jesse Waters to catechize me in the good, the right, the true, and the beautiful. The alternative is a we-before-me approach to marriage. And what we find is that couples who kind of really think about their marriage in terms of us and our family are more likely today to be flourishing. The new miracles today are the sacraments. Because if you go with the definition that a miracle at the time of Jesus was the creator, come to his creation to set it free, that's what Jesus does in the sacraments. Missouri dairy farmers love issues, etc. Usually when we say that we hope for something or that we hope something happens, we're not saying we know it will happen. But is it different when God has made a promise and our hope is set upon that promise and his fulfillment of that promise? After all, we are told that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to talk about Christian hope with Dr. John Bruss of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Then we'll spend some time responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller will be alongside for that. Then a conversation on the two-year anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine war, which is coming up in a couple days. Dr. Yakislav Horpinchuk, the bishop of the Ukrainian Lutheran Church, will be our guest. Dr. John Bruss is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, author of a column for the March issue of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled, A Place of Hope. Dr. Bruss, welcome back. It is great to be here today. Thank you so much. How is Christian hope different from the world's hope? So the, the world's hope is anchored in, in realities, number one, that, are, that do not transcend the way this world operates. So that's the first thing. Secondly, hopefully this comes through loud and clear in the piece that I wrote for the Lutheran Witness. There is a way in which in the world one talks about hope as a kind of self-referential thing. So hope is its own virtue, regardless of what it connects itself to. It can be unrealistic or highly realistic. And Christian hope, however, is rooted in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and in the Word of God, which brings us the benefits and fruits of that resurrection. You say neither Hangdog, Eeyore, or unrealistic Pollyanna get it right in their outlook on the life lived in Christ, but both of them grasp something 
of the whole truth. What do you mean by that? So I think Christians probably, and my wife accuses me of sort of being a hangdog Eeyore kind of character, a pessimistic Christian. And on the other hand, you've got, we all know, very optimistic Christians. And the fact of the matter is that both of those perspectives are informed by a certain amount of truth, but cannot claim the entire truth. So, for example, hangdog Eeyore gets it very well that he is surrounded and hounded by sin and death and devil, that, that the eschatological horizon for him ends six feet in the earth. But Pollyanna understands that she is entirely free from all sins, from all death, from the devil's power, and has everlasting life. And the scriptures are full of the view and teach very clearly the view of Pollyanna. So in Romans 6.18, Paul teaches us that through our baptism, we have been set free from sin. That's a past tense statement, and it appertains to everybody who's been baptized into Christ. The gospel, according to St. John, has numerous wonderful statements to this effect. For example, John chapter 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, whoever believes has eternal life. It's a present possession already. John 5, 24, much the same thing. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's an already sort of thing. And then John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now this is different from the more famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But John 3.36 actually illumines what John 3.16 says. You know, in John 3.16, might have sounds like a future kind of thing. But as John 3.36 teaches, it's an already type of thing. And so Pollyanna grasps these promises of God and lives in the joy of these promises. But she can't ignore her everyday experience. She she can't look at herself and not see her own sin. She can't look at herself and not see her own death. She can't look at herself and not understand that she has a target on her back aimed at by the devil. How is Christian hope related to the Word of God? The scriptures are replete with this as well. Most famously, we have uh, Psalm 130, which I think just screams off the page, in his word do I hope. And so the scriptures clearly connect God's word with hope. Now, in that context, it is in the context of Psalm 130, fascinatingly, this brings Eeyore and Pollyanna into the same psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That's Eeyore, in a sense, looking at life experience and drowning in them, drowning in his own sins. But then the voice of Pollyanna comes into it, right? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. And so this word of God imparted to the Christian by the word, the word of forgiveness, is precisely what gives rise to hope and what causes the Christian to anchor his hope 
in the word that gives everlasting life by the forgiveness of sins. You have kind of an extended analogy for faith as the substance of things hoped for. What is it? Well, do you want me to talk about that analogy or could I bring up another one? Would that be helpful? Either one is fine with me. One of the things that I really aimed at here is the idea that hope and faith can never be self-referential. In other words, the ground of my hope can't be faith exactly, and the ground of my faith can't be my hope. It's not this kind of circular thing. So when the scriptures speak of faith, they always speak of faith as being in something. In the case of Christian faith, it's faith in Jesus and in what he has done. So to think about this verse from Hebrews where it speaks about faith as the substance of things hoped for, the term used there for substance is in Greek is the word hypostasis, okay, substance. That's a tough one for us to wrap our heads around. And I think to sort of put it in the parlance of today, a better translation might be that faith is the existence of the things we hope for. In other words, that's the content of faith. So the point is that faith can be rightly or wrongly placed. So now imagine this, you know, here's an analogy. Suppose that a five-year-old kid, his dad takes him one Saturday down to the bank they go into the room where the safety deposit boxes are, and he opens it up and shows this five-year-old kid a, a million dollars sitting in that in that safety deposit box. The kid's seen it with his own eyes. And then he, he, he puts a card in his hand that has the number of the safety deposit box and a, and a key and says, son, when you are 18 years old, you can come and get this one million dollars. Child goes through his whole life in the hope and the faith that at age 18 he's going to have that. The thing that he hopes for is the million dollars. He knows it exists, and so his faith is properly placed. This is exactly how it is for the Christian in regard to his own hope and his own faith. Christ is already raised from the dead. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It's just that is the thrust of that entire chapter. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, St. Paul says there. And so the evidence, the substance of what we hope for is the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection that we will have in him. And therefore, our faith is well-placed. But our faith isn't faith in a kind of made-up myth about the resurrection. Contemporary Christianity does one of two things with hope. The first thing it does is to make itself referential, sort of a, a therapeutic thing, live optimistically. That's one way of dealing with it. Another way of dealing with it is turning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ into something that can be grasped only by faith. So what I'm talking about here is the fact. The fact of Christ's resurrection can only be grasped by faith. This is entirely incorrect. 1 Corinthians 15 is an extended argument against that with all of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the faith of a Christian is not in the fact of Christ's resurrection, it's in the benefits of the resurrection. 
the benefits, namely being my own freedom from death and everlasting life in Christ. That's what faith anchors itself in, and that is the substance or the things that exist pertaining to our hope. What insight into hope did Martin Luther discover in 1530? You know, I would say that he he really didn't discover anything. And the Word of God for him in 1530 was working like it does for anybody with a rich devotional life. The Word of God might be read and read and read. And finally, in the seasons of life, it strikes us uh, what the Lord has been trying to teach us all along through what His Word says. So this really revolves around Psalm 118, where in the voice of the psalmist, really the voice of Christ, we hear the stone that the builder has rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So this passage was the promise, really, in the Old Testament of the resurrection of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's possible to do with the Psalms is they're first spoken by David or Korah or whoever else was the author. Secondly, they become the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are entirely appurtenant to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a tertiary manner, because we are in Christ through our baptism into his death and resurrection, the words of the psalm belong to us. So from the perspective of 1530, you know, hold up in Festa-Coburg, far away from all the action in Augsburg, where the confession of the Lutherans is being presented before the entire Holy Roman Empire gathered in diet, and everything looks for the world as if the Reformation cause is going to sink. Uh, Luther is in a, in a really depressed mood, and to read some of the correspondence from that time is, is very interesting. He, he was an Eeyore at that point in time. But in his, whether it was reading or recalling from memory, evoking Psalm 118 for himself, he found great comfort, particularly in that psalm. And, and fascinatingly, there's a, a line, I, th I think it's verse 5, he wrote in Latin all over the walls of his apartment in Festa Coburg, non moriar sed vivam et Narabo opera domini. I shall not die, but live, and I shall narrate or declare the works of the Lord. So much uh, was he convinced of his association with Christ, with a stone the builders had rejected, who had now become the chief cornerstone, that he could write himself into that psalm and say of himself the same exact things that Christ could say of himself, that he, he will not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. And so Luther took great comfort from this. Obviously, this was an eschatological hope. So for listeners who are unfamiliar with that term, that means it was a hope that would pertain to Luther on the last day. I shall not die but live. But this is the source of any sort of temporal hope that the Christian might have. It allows you to get out of bed every day and move forward in your vocation, trusting that the ultimate resolution of your life, its ultimate validation, your ultimate existence, really is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus, into whom you have been baptized, whose death has become yours, and whose resurrected, glorious life will be yours on the last day. 
Dr. John Bruss is our guest. We're talking about Christian hope. We'll talk about how the resurrection is a present reality next. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. Theology has consequences. It doesn't live just in ivory towers, but actually in the very choices and daily lives of God's people as they live out what they believe and confess in the world. To learn more about how theology affects our daily lives, this February issue of The Lutheran Witness discusses how the theology of Seminex affected the very lives of God's people in the LCMS and how God worked to preserve his church. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Sanctifying your exercise routine with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. The evangelist St. Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah when he writes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is our Emmanuel. And at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Leland, Michigan, on the shores of Lake Michigan, you will receive Jesus and his eternal gifts in word and sacrament during our Sunday morning divine service at 9.30 a.m. Find out more on our website at emmanuelleland.com. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program, for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back. Dr. John Bruss of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, is our guest. We're talking about Christian hope. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Bruss, how is the resurrection also a present reality now? I think a lot of people don't really grasp this. So I had, I had mentioned earlier those passages from the Gospel according to St. John, and I, it might bear repeating right now. John six forty seven. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's a present tense verb. John would put it in the future if he meant it for the future. It's true in the future as well. What I have now in Christ will be mine in the future. John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. Present tense. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. So through faith in Christ, death is already put behind us, and life, the abundant life of Christ, is already ours. 
And then John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So those passages are really extremely important in talking about the fact that there's a present reality that we live in. Now, St. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6 as well. And if, if you don't mind, I'd just like to read a little bit of that. So starting with verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, he goes on, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. And so finally he wraps this up in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it's really the way that the, the hope of the future resurrection, my future everlasting life, which I already possess, lands on my plate in my present reality is that it is expressed as a freedom from sin. Now, I want to talk about what this freedom from sin looks like. And for this, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession does a very nice job in what's known as Article 4, talking about how, how this works out. And I, I like to talk about the psychosis of the sinner and the psychology of the saint. So in, in the psychosis of the sinner, he lives under a death threat. Uh, he looks at life, and all he sees at the end of it is a grave six feet deep, and he lives under the inscrutable law, the law that can never fully be met of a god who, to him, looks like an ogre because he's established this law that the sinner cannot meet and which is the reason for his death and his condemnation. Well, this sinner, therefore, lives a very interesting life. He goes through this world as if it's his only go-around and trying to get the most out of it he possibly can. And so that makes itself evident in what we would call a, a dissolute kind of life. You know, I don't care about, I'm a scofflaw, I do whatever I want to do. That's one way in which it manifests. Another way in which it manifests is a sort of fastidious keeping of the law that is entirely self-centered. So the sinner looks at every person around him as a means to an end. The end is pleasing God so that he can ultimately come to everlasting life. And the person around him is a means. He can do good works toward that person in order to gain God's approbation of him. And so you can see how, how sort of self-defeating this is. And I would add a final thing. It's not only his own sins that are an issue, it's the sins of others against him. There's no confidence that God can or will resolve offenses against me on the last day. And so I feel like I've got to take care of it myself. That's the life of sin. It's the psychosis of the sinner. God is angry, unloving, uh, and 
everything around me is turned into an instrument for somehow getting something out of either this life or the next one. Compare that with the psychology of the saint. The psychology of the saint is informed entirely by what Christ has done on my behalf, that he has paid the debt for all of my sins. They cannot be held against me in any way, shape, or form, either now or in the eschaton by God. Now, my own sins could come back to haunt me in this life, but they can't be held against me by God because Christ has paid for them all. And because Christ has paid for them all, the condemnation and the death that I merited due to my sin have been lifted. And so I don't have this sort of black horizon that is six feet deep, a hole in the ground filled with worms. My horizon looks like the brightness of everlasting life that lasts forever in fellowship with my Savior God in heaven and all of the saints who have gone before me. And for that very reason, because I don't labor under this weight of death and condemnation, I am freed up to start using God's law as a means of loving my neighbor. So the law instructs me to not only refrain from murder, but to see to my neighbor's bodily needs. The sinner does that sort of stuff in order to please God. The saint is free to do them purely out of love for the neighbor with no sense that this merits any reward that it brings justification because Christ has done it all. And so there's this wonderful lightness that comes as a result of the the hope that we have in everlasting life, a lightness with which we are enabled to go through life in love toward our neighbor living in our vocation. And I think it's, uh, I think Melanchthon and Apology 4 is just ingenious in laying a finger on this. So when will Christian hope finally be fulfilled? So Christian hope will finally be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus uh, returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Um, We all know the the scene very well, which Jesus gives in Matthew 25, the the Son of Man returning in clouds, uh, on clouds in glory, gathering the nations before himself, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. I love that passage because uh, Christ already knows who are his. He doesn't figure out who's a goat and a sheep. It's, it's obvious by looking at him. And it's at that point when he tells all the sheep to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world that they will finally find the consummation of the hope that they live with now in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Dr. John Bruss is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of a column for the March issue of the Lutheran Witness Magazine titled The Place of Hope. The Lutheran Witness Magazine interprets the world from a Lutheran perspective. An annual digital and print subscription is less than $25 Learn more at cph.org slash witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, The Lutheran Witness Magazine. Dr. Bruss, thank you. Thank you very much. I look forward to talking with you again soon. 
When we come back on this Thursday afternoon, we'll continue a conversation we started yesterday with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer responding to your unanswered Bible questions. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as This Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration. The 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org conferences. Hey, young adults, are you finding it harder and harder to meet and connect with other Lutheran men and women? Join us at University Lutheran Church in Champaign, Illinois on Saturday, April 6th for the Martin Plus Katie Conference. We'll talk about being men and women in Christ, meet new friends, get to know each other, and have fun. Register at martinpluskatie.org. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-P-L-U-S-K-A-T-I-E.org. Registration closes on Palm Sunday. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. The first and last Adam. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the ministry behind the revolutionary Answers Bible Curriculum. Many Christians add evolution to the Bible, saying, we evolved from ape-like creatures. But consider this, the Bible says there was a first Adam who sinned and brought death into God's creation. Now, if we evolved, death had existed for millions of years and creation was already filled with suffering, pain, and thorns and thistles. So what did Adam's sin really do? No, the Bible is clear. There really was a first Adam who brought death into God's perfect creation, and that's why we needed the last Adam, the Lord Jesus, to die physical death in our place to pay the price for our sin. The first and last Adams, they're tied together. There's so much more to learn when you go to AnswersRadio.com. You'll find resources for the whole family to encourage and strengthen you at AnswersRadio.com.